You're listening to In Focus by MarketScale, a podcast by video professionals for video professionals, putting in focus the topics, teachers, and tips guiding today's video industry. With your host, MarketScale's Senior Director of Video Production, Josh Brummett. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of In Focus. Today, I have a very special guest, Mike Nugget. He is a freelance colorist out of New York, and he's worked on some really awesome shows and, and videos over the past you know, years that he's been, he's been a colorist. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks for uh, having me on. Awesome. So uh, tell me about your history. How did you get into filmmaking, and why did you decide to be a colorist? Yeah, so uh, I started in the industry in 2003. Uh, I basically started at the bottom. I was in a shipping department, just running around the city, uh, delivering packages to different agencies at the time, like three-quarter tapes and DVDs, which is obviously uh, showing my age here now that we don't have those things anymore. But um, so, yeah, I worked my way up through that. Then I went to the duplication department, which was basically, as it sounds, duplicating tapes and, and setting up all the different outputs and stuff. Moved into assistant online editing, um, which was basically mostly doing Chiron work for commercials and things like that. Then moved into online assistant, which I started working on uh, films at the time. And then just kept going into the, you know, further and further with my career until finally in about 2007, I got the opportunity to color uh, an episodic series and kind of never looked back from then. So, you know, I've been doing color now for about 13 or 14 years. So it's been, uh, you know, really from the bottom to, you know, wherever I am, I wouldn't say top, but uh, to where I am now. Yeah, that's awesome. So I know in, in video production, there's so many different routes you can go, you know, especially in post, you, you start with editing and, you know, you can be editing, you can be doing motion design and graphics, you can be doing color, you know, what kind of attracted you to, to kind of put yourself into color? Um, it, you know, it's funny because it's, uh, it was kind of, it's almost thrown onto me in, in a way, like in, in the sense of, I think most people when they go to college and, they, and they're starting to think about anything in television or film or something like that, they they start navigating towards a certain role, whether it's going to be directing or writing or producing or post or editorial or something like that. And I think once you come out of there, you know, it also could depend on the first job you get. Some people get their first job and it's nothing like they went to college for and they wind up doing something else for the rest of their life. For me, uh, I made a decision... I think a lot of people decide they want to do editing and, um, you know, where, where do you do that? That's in the post side. So, you know, I'm not going to be a director. I'm not going to be a writer. I'm not going to be a producer. I decided to be in the post. And then because of my first job, uh, the way it was structured is you went into online editing first as an assistant before you went into offline editing, a creative editing. Uh, and at that time in 2003, HD was just coming out, which is now sounds funny. Um, but HD was just coming out, so it was like the new technology, and I was really interested in being on top of that. Uh, so I decided to stay in the online position instead of going into the offline and, you know, creative cutting. And then um, that basically, you know, online and color kind of go together. So when you do online editing, you're, you're assembling the show from the original camera raw, and then you're, you're quote-unquote, passing it off to the colorist, who then colors for X amount of days or whatever, gives it back to the online person to title and, and then export. So it's those two things are kind of go hand in hand. Uh, fast forward doing online editing for, you know, about five years to 
then just wanting to do something a little bit more creative. So that's where I wanted to dabble with the color stuff then because online editing, it, it's creative in, a, in more of a technical way that, you know, you need to know a lot of technical stuff and you need to know how to get stuff in and out of the systems and pass to color and back and forth, but it's not so creative. So I wanted to definitely do a little more creative work. So that's why um, color was, you know, again, hand in hand with online. So it kind of moved into that. So that's kind of how I really... Um, that, that was the, like the tra trajectory to get into color. And then from there, you know, just again, fell in love with it. And I still do online editing now too. You know, technically my title is colorist and finishing editor. So there are times when I'm doing just finishing or onlining and there are times when I'm doing just color. And most of the time I'm doing a little bit of both. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of, uh, they, they go hand in hand and that was kind of the next creative step for me. Yeah. So then every day is different for you then, you know, different projects, different things you're doing as far as roles. I bet that keeps it interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's days when I'm doing one role in the morning and another role at night. And then the next day I'm doing both roles all day. And that really keeps me on my toes. And I like it too, because there are some projects that, um, I, I'm, I'm, I fit better for doing quote unquote, just onlining. And there, there are some projects where, the, the client does their own online and then gives me a final file and I just do the color. So, you know, it's, it's good to be versatile, versatile and, and have the ability to offer the client either or or both. So that kind of helps out with my, uh, my clientele. What I think is interesting is you had a, you had a full-time job at a post house, but you really took the leap and decided to be, be your own boss and be a freelancer. So tell me about kind of what caused you to take that leap and, um, and you know, how the work has been for you. Yeah, I worked in the po in the first post house for about three years, and then I moved over to Technical Postworks for uh, thirteen years. Um, and basically, you know, I, I learned a lot of stuff at Technical Postworks. It was a great place for me to be. That's where I learned basically all my skills and moved up to to where I am. Uh, and it just came down to, um, you know, af after a long time of doing that kind of stuff, I, there were certain projects I would do that maybe I didn't want to do, or they weren't what I thought I wanted I, I should be doing. And I just kind of want to take more control of that myself. So, um, you know, thinking about doing freelancing was, you know, mostly about buying the equipment first. So I took that leap, uh, you know, a bunch of years ago and, and, and invested in some equipment so that I was able to physically do it because not everybody can, you know, it, it's quite expensive to get started on your own. Uh, but I knew exactly what I needed and I went and went ahead and bought that. So that was the first leap. And then, um, you know, making sure everything worked was, was a big, was a big project. And then basically it was just, you know, I took a leap of faith. You know, I talked to my wife about it, said I wanted to try to do this. She was on board with it. She knew I wasn't, uh, extremely happy anymore and I decided to do it. Uh, so, you know, it was scary because I didn't, I didn't technically have any freelance clients. Uh, you know, I had clients in the past that have, I worked with that, you know, got through, got through Postworks, uh, to me. And I was just hoping that they were, they would be on board with, with me doing it on my own as well. So when I first did it, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't really have any work. And then I was scared about maybe this won't work. So I kind of gave myself goals of, um, six month goals. And the first six months was, uh, you know, do as much as I can, no sleeping, working days, nights, weekends, you know, networking as much as possible, taking meetings everywhere. Um, to see if I could get it to work. And luckily that, that worked. And then six, the next six months was, okay, can I sustain this for a full year? And if I do, do I like it? Because, you know, there's a lot of things I, I miss about being in a post house, a lot of people I miss, especially, um, some engineering support, things like that, that I was like, I don't know if I'm going to like being on my own. 
Um, that year went by and I realized, okay, I kind of do like this, um, having, having the control. And then the next year, you know, goal was, all right, can I, can I sustain this without having to put in 150% all the time? Um, you know, cause I, I had to be my own salesperson, my own producer, my own, uh, accountant, all that stuff. So I don't really love doing that kind of stuff. I really like doing my own work. But, um, you know, fast forward almost three years now and it's, and it seems to be working out pretty well. And, uh, the best part is I get to also work in, in, I still, still do work in post houses. I even, you know, just recently worked with Technicolor Postworks again, uh, VPNing due to COVID, but, uh, I got to work, you know, with my old, some of my old colleagues and things like that. I'm working at different post houses now, working at home a lot. So, uh, yeah, it, it seems to be working, which is great. And, uh, you know, I think I'm going to do this for, for quite a while until I either can't or, uh, you know, get sick of my own house. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And and something, you know, going back to color, you know, color is one of those things that a lot of like you kind of do for every single project, regardless of how much time you put into it or not. It's something that you have to think about and you have to put some work into. But what a lot of, you know, professionals do is sometimes they only just color out of Premiere or color out of their editing suite and they're not really taking it up a notch as much as they could to balance the images and to make it look consistent and give it a feel. So, you know, could you first walk us through, you know, what, what is it, what are the steps you take when you are coloring a project to make it look as good as it can be? Yeah. I mean, uh, I think, uh, you know, most colors have almost the same mindset of, you know, start off by, uh, making sure the shot is exposed correctly and balanced. I mean, those, those are just, you know, it's like putting on your shoes before tying them. Um, so like, you know, if a shot is, is, is underexposed or overexposed, first thing to do is just make sure all the information that we can see is in our grasp and, and we can, uh, you know, normalize things, let's say. And then the next step would be, to, okay, let's start adding some color. Let's start adding some contrast. Let's start adding overall things. And then, and then basically after that, it's kind of like, all right, let's, let's just go at it. And that's when you start picking apart the shots and deciding whether, you know, you're going to bring the window down the back or you're going to sharpen someone's face or their jacket is not the same blue as it was two, two scenes ago because the lighting changes. And then you start really diving into the details from there. And then once that's all done and the shot looks great, then you do even more stuff like a, like a look. That's when you may want to put a vignette on or add more grain or, uh, you know, put a LUT on or, or put it into a mood or something like that. So it's kind of, you know, that's, that's my way of doing things. I think most people will tackle it the same way. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, a basic step-by-step of how to get to a shot. And so, you know, I think a lot of times people, you know, they, they, there's always this thing that I've always said was the two things that stand out from an amateur production to a professional production is one, the lighting and two, the color. And I think, uh, a lot, and that, maybe that's not true in all cases, but that seems to be one of the things I notice the most. And I think a lot of times what, you know, young filmmakers do is they want to add all that that tone. They want to do the grading portion first. That's all they can think about is they don't really balance their image very well. Then they just throw on this tone and they don't always set it up right where your blacks look really murky and kind of have color to them. You know, how do you really set up a tone for your film correctly? And uh, how do you kind of do it to where it doesn't feel amateur? Yeah, I mean, well, one of the first amateur things that happens when people shoot is that they think they need to do it all in camera and they want instant gratification. I mean, that's the world we live in nowadays anyway, especially with social media. And it's like, you know, when they shoot something in their back of their minds, they like, oh, I want it to look like this at the end. And that's great. 
that's you know you need to have that goal but while you're shooting you're not shooting for that final picture you're shooting to know that it's going to a colorist who will help you get it to that final picture so especially nowadays with everybody shooting log which is great um, there's more information in the picture. It doesn't, you know, it looks, it looks bad. If you just look at a log picture, it's, it's flat. It's, there's no color in it. Uh, there's no contrast in it. But the point is that that will give me as a colorist much more room to play with and to get the picture that you want. So, you know, that's tough for especially newcomers who don't understand LUTs and don't understand in camera LUTs and things like that or having a, um, you know, a, a, t a monitor on site with you to see that because basically what could happen is we as a colorist we love when people come to us before they even start shooting before they turn a camera on because then we can work with them and and kind of reiterate what's going to happen in color so that you know you shoot the right way and if that all works out then we can either give you a lot that that's out there or we can make you custom LUT and that goes in the camera and then while you're shooting you're basically using a quote-unquote pre-colored file that we give you to see how it will look or close to how it will look at the end. And this, this way you're not freaked out when you're looking through the eye lens and you see a very flat image. Um, a lot of people don't understand that. So they really try to, they try to do all the work in the camera and, you know, a good DP and who has, especially has a good relationship with a colorist, um, will talk to the colorist beforehand. We'll have this big discussion and we'll do test files. Many te test files are the best because then you really understand okay, this is how I thought I was going to shoot it, but now working with Mike on the color side, this is how it's going to come out at the end. So maybe I'm going to raise the the exposure a couple stops or something like that so that it will come out the right way at the end because I've seen how it's going to come out at the end. So um, that's, a, that's a big deal too, and just not understanding what what the colorist role is. I mean, I've had plenty of clients, unfortunately, who you know literally don't don't realize why, oh, why do we have to go through color for this? It's like, well, because if you don't, it's not going to, you know, you're really putting a lot of pressure on your DP at that point. And it's just, you're not going to get the best quality out of it. Right. And, uh, you know, I think that oftentimes, you know, we were speaking with the relationship with the DP. I mean, the camera technology is really important. I mean, if you look at how much camera technology has evolved over the past decade, I mean, you know, dynamic range and bit depth wasn't really much of a thing. And now this is, you know, really deciding factors for how much flexibility and freedom you have with color. So talk, talk to me about how camera technology has changed and how it's allowed you to be able to do your job better. Yeah, I mean, bit depth is huge. I mean, bit depth is, is everything that we want from people, especially when people are transcoding or giving us new files that aren't the original camera files. Bit depth is the most important thing for us. I mean, I you know, the simplified way of talking about bit depth is thinking about resolution because everybody kind of understands that where like you have SD, HD, 720 HD, then you have now 4K UHD, of course, there's now 6, 8, 16K, all this other stuff. But um, the point is that, you know, you know, you understand resolution, which is basically more pixels per per your shot, that it breaks it down and gives us more room to get better quality. That's kind of the same thing with bit depth is for color. So if you have more bit depth, like 444 versus 422 or 4411 or anything like that, then we have more color. It's not something you necessarily see, but in color when i'm playing with the tools and playing with my panels and and trying to get more out of the blacks because they were shot underexposed or trying to especially key out faces for you know making uh mats and keys that that will be just for that one specific area the bit depth gives us that's where we see those that that 
like it could break down if if it's low bit depth and i try to pull a key i'll see a lot of blocking and i'll see you know i won't be able to get the fine line around someone's face as they're talking um things like that so bit depth is huge for us and now the good thing is like all these systems are handling bigger bit depths and all the cameras are handling bigger bit depth so it's just bringing everything to a new level um as far as hdr i mean that's just it's a whole new world i mean it really i mean this is i think it's bigger than going from sd to hd um you know 20 years ago that uh you know going from 100 nits uh which is basically the brightest point of hd to a thousand nits i mean you're talking 10 times the brightness um that's huge and to be able to take stuff that's normally seen in in you know think about putting something in a bucket and then you, you're now taking that bucket and you're making, you're putting into like a garbage can. Um, that's kind of what it's like. That's a bad analogy, but, um, it, it's, it's just so it's huge. It's, it's tremendous. And to, for, for colorists, it's so much fun to play with that because things like a, like, let's say a night scene in the city with lights, you know, shining like a stoplight or a green light or, or neon lights in times square, those lights now, it's so much fun because they're not just all in the same, you know, couple of nits or whatever it is. Now we can separate those and we can really uh, get detail in them. And it's really, really fun to see. And, you know, they compare HDR to being like the human eye. And it, it really, the first time I ever did one, an HDR project, you know, I'm staring at a monitor all day. And then I went outside that, that, that day and I was like, oh my God, this actually looks like my monitor was which was incredible as opposed to like seeing something you know walking outside then going inside and we'll look at a regular uh sdr monitor and you could tell things are muted it looks more it just looks like a tv you know it doesn't look like real life as much so hdr is is, is really huge and it's really fun to play with so i actually haven't personally done any hdr projects how is the workflow different than traditional Honestly, the workflow itself, you know, to get the color and to get out of color is really not different. The workflow is basically the same. Files are the same. We're using the same original camera files as we would use for SDR. It's all about the monitoring. And that's where the big debate now is in the whole community is, unfortunately, right now, the only monitor that's, uh, you know, acceptable by Netflix and, and Amazon and things like that is the Sony um, X300. And A, it's $30,000. Uh, B, it's only 24 inches big. And C, they don't literally, they literally don't stop making. <laughs> so there's, there's a finite number of monitors out there that are quote unquote allowed to use. So for instance, if I had to do an HDR project right now, I, I literally can't do it at home because I don't have that monitor. Um, and even if I, even if I had the money laying around, I couldn't buy it because they're, they're, they're not making it anymore. So uh, I'd have to go to a post house, which they, you know, like Technicolor, I think has two of them. You know, Sim has two of them. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how, what, who else has them, but um, all the big post houses definitely have them. But it's, it's, it's a kind of a pain in the butt. I mean, they're making that now. They're making good, like the LG uh, CX is like a good home HDR monitor. And technically it could be calibrated pretty close to like the X300. But so like if I wanted to buy that, that's only like sixteen hundred bucks. I can buy that now and, uh, and and technically do HDR work, but it's not sanctioned by people like Netflix and things like that. So I wouldn't be, you know, I could sneak it, but I, I would never do that. Uh, and so it, it's, a, it's a tough situation to be in. And that's the biggest uh, one of the biggest community conversations that's going on is what's the next 
what's the next monitor that's going to be affordable or is there a monitor that's going to be affordable who's going to make it and you know that's why every year NAB I mean this is canceled this year but it's like let's see what what's going to come out what technology is going to come out that could possibly take over and be the norm because you know in a couple of years I think almost everything is going to be HDR I mean it's a little slower rollout I think than HD but um you know, I think HBO is starting to get into it now. Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, they all do it already. So Disney Plus and things like that. So I think eventually everybody will do it. But it'd also be um, interesting to see how long it's going to take to get to the average, average person through, you know, your Verizon Fios or your, you know, your regular, whatever, your TV at home. So uh, it, it's a, it's an interesting time to be part of it, part of it all. But it's gorgeous. <laughs> Yeah. So from an end user perspective, do you have to have an HDR enabled TV in order to, to experience it, how it's intended to be experienced or, or do theaters, modern theaters have HDR technology? Um, no, uh, I don't think, no, theaters are not equipped for that. They're actually, uh, in a P3 color space, which is, uh, less, a lot less than, uh, HDR. I don't know if they'll, move over i mean i think a lot of films and tvs are being you know even if they're not going to the end user is not going to see it in hdr they're being done in H. I mean netflix in general is like first of all you're not even getting 4k unless you're paying the extra you know fee for netflix to get 4k so that's just the size uh, as far as hdr goes i mean unless you're watching it on an hdr enabled tv you're not seeing an hdr version anyway so you know we'll, we'll deliver hdr and i know a lot of films are being done hdr but then they they will be you know uh, converted into whatever format there is for, you know, general people. So, um, you know, they, the, like I said, the HDR consumer monitors that are out there, I mean, even if you don't want to pay the 1600 for the LG one, you know, they, there's, there's ones for whatever, $700, but they might not go to a thousand nits. They might go to 700 nits. They might go to 600 nits or 800 nits, which in theory, you know, on a, on a general person level is plenty. Because, you know, even as a colorist, we don't dabble in the 900 to 1,000 nit range very often. That's literally like a headlight of a car or, uh, or like, like I said, like a street light or something like that or a sun. Um, so, you know, we, we don't even color it at that top range all the time anyway. That's what they call specular highlights. And it, it's, uh, you know, not as, not as common as, as the rest of the color spectrum. Okay. I honestly, I've always seen and heard, you know, the conversations around it, but I haven't really explored it enough. So I, I think that's really awesome. I can't wait to kind of explore this. And, you know, I'm, I'm in the market for a new TV, so I'm definitely going to look at an HDR TV if I can, uh, just because if that's what's on the horizon, then I want to be ready for it. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. It, I, I'm, everybody's interested to see how long it's going to take to be the norm. I mean, again, it, even with the, even with 4k, which is now, you know, old news kind of, um, there, you know, nobody's broadcasting 4k, like Fios isn't broadcasting 4k. Um, they just can't, they don't have the physical bandwidth or, um, I mean, they, they can stream it, but they can't broadcast it through their own, you know, coax cable Fios TV. Um, so, and I, and, you know, I don't think anybody else can either at this point. So it'll be interesting to see how long it takes and, and what the infrastructure will be. I mean, I don't know if they're going to have to rewire the entire world to get, to get it. <laughs> Or if streaming's just, you know, who knows, maybe Fios will just literally take their whole TV platform and make it streaming. You know, that, that might be the next case too. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's like camera technology has evolved so incredibly much, but then our, our 
ability to digest it and the way it's shot and colored and in post is just a whole lot less. And it would take an enormous amount of time and infrastructure to like change that for, you know, the millions and millions of people that digest it. It that's gonna be interesting to see how that plays out. I think Netflix definitely has it down with with them streaming it because then it's all up to the user and their own equipment to to digest it yeah, that way. Exactly. And I mean they're they're basically the leaders of all this stuff at this point anyway. They make they're kind of the ones making the rules and everybody's kind of following. And it's just a matter of time before they say, okay, well, here's everything you want, plus here's your live local news uh, as well. Yeah, and then once, right. they, once they do that, then, you know, that'll, that'll be the way it goes. <laughs> well, that's going to be an interesting future, to say the least. So, uh, well, going back to some of these things on, on color, you know, I, I've seen a lot of professionals. I know a lot of professionals that really don't take color seriously. Sometimes it's more of like a, like they, they just kind of play with it. Like they'll adjust their, their levels and all that. Then they'll add a LUT, then they'll go back and fix their levels. And, uh, you know, so I would really like to hear from a professional, you know, what are you going to get out of, you know, really learning to professionally color your, your projects correctly, correctly. And what is the benefit going to be in the end products? I think a lot of people don't quite realize spending that extra time could really elevate their projects. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, kind of, Going back to what we were saying too before with the camera work, with um, like I actually do quite a bit of student projects, and sometimes I just do them for free because I think they're fun. <laughs> um, because they're you know for me as a colorist, the pressure is kind of off because they usually don't. They're the exact same person that you're talking about right now. Like they don't understand why they need to go here, and they don't understand why it needs to cost money to do this, whatever. And then when they see the product, they're like, "Wow!" Like, okay, now I get it. And for me, being you know older in the industry. Uh, versus a college kid uh, that, you know, I like to be able to teach them like, hey, you know, this is the way it should go. You know, I know I realize you can't afford it right now and that's fine. You know, either I'll do it for really cheap or I'll just do it for free and, and show them. But at least I feel like the good part is like uh, uh, when I'm done with that project, I know that I showed another new filmmaker the the importance of color. And, you know, hopefully in the future, he'll be like, okay, this is why you need to go there and, and pass that on to his friends and you know, people will realize it. So, um, I think I, you know, right off the bat, it's just, you know, the experience. I mean, if, if you're not, if, if you get your friend to color it or you color it or, or you don't color it, um, then, you know, with me, I, when I get something new, I will analyze it. I'll, I'll have the discussions with the you know, with director, you know, what kind of mood we are, I'll read the script. If, if it's a, you know, scripted tele, uh, project, um, and go over things and then, you know, just using all my expertise for 20 years, I, you know, I have a good starting point and I'll be like, okay, this is how I'm going to attack this shot. And before I touch any button, I have a visual, you know, in my head, a visual of kind of probably what I want it to look like at the end. Let's just get it there. Um, and then, you know, it, that could change as, as I start working, but it's, you know, it's really mostly that it's mostly just having the experience, an experienced person, uh, look at it a certain way who knows how to use the tools that are out there for people. I mean, resolve is free. Uh, a lot of these programs, you can get a free version of them and you can play with them and anybody can technically do them. And, you know, this is the, what I say all the time about anybody coming out of college is like, yeah, they, you know, you might have a college kid that can hit the buttons better than I do or quicker than I can, um, or something like that, but you can't, you know, you don't have 20 years of experience and that's both working on projects, working with different cameras, working, I mean, working with different cameras for 20 years too. You think about, you know, I've worked with analog cameras and I've worked with tape cameras and I've worked with digital cameras and I've worked with the new, this, the new, that, 
Um, so I know what they can do or the limitations are, uh, as well as going through the uh, technology that we were just talking about, Go from HD to, uh, to, to 4K. You know, I work on a lot of docs, so I do a lot of archival work and to know how to handle you know, something from 1980s that's been transferred to film and back to VHS and then back to digital versus, you know, the newest 4K uh, beautifully shot something interview and putting them together and making them look, you know, cohesive. That's that's a, you know, a decent skill to to uh, work with. So I think, it, you know, experience is definitely the biggest thing, I think. Um, and just knowing how to use the tools, because if, you know, if you have somebody who just downloaded Resolve last year for free and they're working in college, great. They probably learned, you know, hopefully 50% or more of the program, but I've been doing it for a long time now. So I probably know, you know, a lot more than that. So I might be able to pull a trick out or rescue a shot that they didn't even know that button existed kind of thing. So I think basically experience comes down a lot to why you'd want to do that. Now it is pricey and, you know, Unfortunately, a lot of colleges don't. I've done a bunch of uh, seminars or something like that where a lot of colleges they don't even teach this part, and it's it's kind of a real shame. They teach editing, they teach writing, producing, shooting, blah blah, blah and then they stop, and that's their final project. And it's like, well, you forgot about the whole pro, pro, uh, post process. That's not only going to cost you an extra twenty, fifty thousand dollars to do your little short film, but also is huge in making your film come you know quote unquote come to life in a way that you didn't even know it was gonna go so for those people like those professors and even those clients that don't understand that color is just a part of the process and they go well why can't just my my editor do this what 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 are you going to tell them what is their end product going to be different if you if you do this project versus just a normal editor that's not really professionally experienced in color well right off the bat I mean just like uh like financially and stuff like that, you can, you can, I'm going to be able to do it quicker. I'm going to be like, if you tell me, okay, I want this to look like, you know, Chernobyl, uh, like a really cool blue, whatever. I know what that means. And I know, I, I know what the steps are to get, get it there. Whereas you might have somebody who's fumbling and be like, okay, it's blue. And they right away make it blue. It's like, no, you forgot the, the f 10 steps before that, before you even apply the blue. You know, that kind of thing. Um, so that's, you know, financially, you, you'd save some time. Yes. I, do I cost more than an editor who's trying it? Of course I do. Um, so it, that's where you kind of weigh the options. But if you're a director or a DP and you're trying to get your point across, you know, who would you rather talk to? You know, it's like, you know, you're trying to work on your car. Do you want to talk to a mechanic about brakes or do you want to talk to your friend about brakes? Like the mechanic's going to know exactly what you're talking about and what's wrong with the car before you even finish your sentence. Um, so that's, that's one huge thing too. And then again, it's just having the tools. Uh, you mentioned before you were talking about, um, you know, coloring in premiere, you know, you can color in Avid and symphony. And I did that for years. I, I colored just in symphony for like five years when reality work. Um, and you can do it and I still do it to this day. Sometimes I try not to, but you can. And, um, but there's a limited set of tools, uh, you know, that you can, you can do a certain amount of color. And then after that, it becomes a pain in the butt and you have to like do certain layers and all this other stuff and then start rendering. Um, and you still don't have all the tools that you would have in a color system like a Resolve or a base light or something like that that's literally built to do just color. I mean, now Resolve does a lot more. They all do a lot more. But initially, it was literally built to, to do just color. So, I mean, 
again, like the scenario of like a car, would you rather take it to an auto shop or to your friend's garage? The auto shop's built to do your car and do it perfectly and have every tool that's necessary, every single wrench, all that other stuff. Whereas your friend would be like, I only have these 20 tools, so I'm going to fix your car as best as I can. Yeah. And I think sadly, you know, a lot of the people, a lot of the general public doesn't understand that that's just part of the process. You know, like color is a necessary thing that has to be done on films these days because of how we shoot video, because of shooting in log and shooting in dynamic range and all that stuff. Like it's just part of the process. And I think over time, people will start getting used to that and understanding that because right now they just think, oh, it's edited and then it's done. Well, all this goes into goes into it. And I think that'll hopefully that starts to change and people understand that. Yeah, I mean, the general public, I mean, and it's not to their fault, but, um, you know, I always joke that like editing, graphics, VFX, coloring, all the post-process that we do, which is huge, it's a career, there's thousands and millions of people who do it, it's all invisible. And it's supposed to be. You're supposed, as, as a general as a general user, you're supposed to watch a TV show and at the end of the day, you know what you're supposed to talk about? how good the acting was or how exciting it was or how big the explosions were. No one is supposed to walk out of a theater and say, huh, that shot, something was weird about that guy's face color versus the shot before it. A, that means that I didn't do my job right. And B, that means it irked you some way um, that was unnatural. Like I, I I don't know editing very well. My wife is an editor. I, I obviously work on TV shows. But I can't look at editing the same way as an editor does because I just don't – I don't. I kind of just don't care. Like when I watch a show, I look more about the color and, and then the acting and all that other stuff. And the only time I'll ever notice editing is when it's bad, when when something catches me off. I'm like, huh, why, why would they have just cut to that person? They weren't done talking yet. Like that kind of annoyed me. And that's the only time you see that. So that's why it's kind of like an invisible art. And same thing with color. I mean – 99% of the general public doesn't even know that color is a, is a, is a career, you know, like they, they assume and you know, they assume the camera guy shoots it and that's how it looks. And, you know, that's something that irks me personally. And, and I know a bunch of colorists and things like, you know, like the Academy Awards or the Emmys where DPs can win Emmys and, and Academy Awards. But as you mentioned way earlier in this, in this interview, that colorist is basically, you know, doing the DPs work with them, you know, they, they work hand in hand. And I'm not saying DPs don't deserve awards by any means. I think they totally do. But without a colorist, the DPs work doesn't even get seen or or their vision doesn't get seen. So and and that's that's like literally if a DP is telling a colorist what to do, whereas sometimes colorists, especially with docs and things like that, we're the ones kind of telling the DP or t- telling the director, hey, I think this scene should be this or, you know, this scene is a little happier. I'm going to make it a little warmer. And, and, you know, we kind of sculpt it a lot more on the creative side than some other people do. So that's kind of an irk, you know, it kind of irks uh, our community. There's actually a new colorist awards that's actually happening as we speak that, that, uh, I'll be submitting some stuff into that's through the ICG and, uh, CSI groups. Dang, that's awesome. Dang, I had no idea. That's really cool. And that's and congratulations to you guys. I mean, you deserve it. I mean, you guys do so much work and I feel like it's underappreciated because it's, it's just, you know. A lot of people just don't think about it, sadly. Um, and you mentioned earlier, you know, when people are watching these films, you're right. If, if they do watch something and something's wrong, that's what takes them out. And the whole point of a film, and if people are doing their jobs right, is if you can watch it and you don't get taken out of it and think about something that's wrong, then we've done our job as, as entertaining entertaining an audience. And and uh, and that's what they're paying for when they get a colorist is you're not going to be able to think about those or even a fishing editor. You're not going to think about those things that are wrong 
that kind of took you out of the system. Yeah. And going back to what you were saying too, about hiring professionals, it's like, you know, you know, in any industry, you want to be able to count on the people that are doing their part of the job. Meaning like if you're a director and you want to hire this guy for editing, this guy for VFX, this guy for titling, this guy for color, the last thing you want to do is have to micromanage everybody. I mean, the whole point is you, you hire the people who are good and that can do their job that, that you could be a little hands off and you get to be, you know, work with them instead of telling them what to do. So, you know, that's, that's a perfect case of hiring, you know, the right people. And if you do hire the right team, which hopefully, you know, all the projects have been on uh, and that right person is that like, they trust you and they understand that you're going to do the best you can for their project in what you do. Like, I'm never going to criticize an editor. I'm never going to criticize, you know, a, a writer because that's not what I do. Hopefully the director hired the right writer and the right editor. Um, and vice versa. I hope, you know, you know, everybody can have a say, of course. But, uh, you know, the point is that you get a team, the right team on it, and they all do their jobs right. And you get to reap the, reap the benefits of, of having the right team. Right. And to really wrap us up here, any tips for these video professionals who want to start taking color more seriously? Yeah, I mean, first off is, uh, you know, start start looking at things differently, you know, start looking at films and, and TV a little differently than you normally do. Don't, you know, pay attention to color. Realize that when they go, you know, when someone's crying, it's probably going to be cooler and bluer than when somebody's running in a field of daisies, it's probably going to be warmer and redder. Um, you know, start realizing that kind of stuff. Start realizing how scenes change. Then really start, you know, looking at things you like. Like, uh, you know, again, like Chernobyl was, I thought it was gorgeous. Um, and I love the way it looked. And I was like, oh man, that's so cool. So I actually just for fun started doing some shots on my own to try to make it look like Chernobyl to see if I could pull off the same kind of, you know, look, um, that kind of thing. So, you know, look, look for projects you like, start studying those people. I mean, there's forums, there's so many forums, there's, there's colorist forums, there's forums for specific systems like Resolve and Baselight. Then there's, you know, there's just colorist forums. There's, there's so many different things you can do online, you know, and tutorials, start looking at tutorials. There's so many people who, who the community is so good that there's so many people who will be like, I did this shot. Let me break down how I did it. And literally will say, okay, on this note, I did this on this note. I did this. Here's where I did this. And it's like, oh, that's a cool trick. And then you start adapting those into your, your, your own workspace. Um, get stuff, get programs for free. I mean, resolve is literally free. I mean, you're talking about a, a program that is colored star Wars and you can have the same program that the guy who colored star Wars has for free. Um, so why, why wouldn't you do that? Um, that's a big one. I would say if you, if you're in a post house or, you know, you're starting to go that way, try to, you know, make friends with the colorists, the, the big guys who are there and, and then sit next to them, sit behind them. Even when I was at Postworks and I was doing color, I would sit next to guys who are, you know, better or higher up in me in color. And even if it was just for 10 minutes and I just watched their fingers, watch their hands, look at what they're doing and ask questions and be like, that was a cool trick. What'd you do there? And he said, boom, this is what I did. I'm like, all right, that's cool. And then try to, you know, maybe steal it from him you know, in a good way. Uh, so I think, you know, in general, the community is pretty good. And I think everybody pretty much is, is nice about helping each other and, and giving advice. So uh, reach out. You know, I, I have no problem with strangers reaching out to me. And, you know, even if it's just an email, hey, I heard about you this way or, you know, uh, I've been to NAB a bunch of times and done presentations and like, oh, I saw you here two years ago. How are you doing? And it's like, OK, let's strike up a conversation and then, you know, go from there. And I have no problem, you know, doing these podcasts or, 
you know, talking to somebody and trying to get them in, you know, into the doors because, uh, you know, it's like a pay it forward kind of thing. Well, Mike, thank you so much for hopping in. How can people check out your work and how can people reach out to you? Uh, best way is my website, which is just uh, MikeNugget.com. Um, on there, I have all my all the work I've done, um, some reels that I've done, which I have to update that a little bit. Uh, you know, just uh, general stuff about me, some bio stuff and everything. So, and my you know email address is on there, my phone number is on there. So, you know, that's the best way to do it. Perfect. Well, Mike, thank you so much for hopping in. Uh, I think you really gave some insights and. Uh, you know, looking forward to seeing what else you do in the industry. All right, man. Thank you very much for having me. Awesome. Thank you.